This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We have gone from talking about reopening to now dealing with another wave. We heard about uh, New York City's numbers. The mayor saying that the city has one last chance to halt a second wave. Texas's caseload topping a million. U.S. hospitalizations rising to a record. And we're also seeing a deadly resurgence continuing over in Europe. So we have talked a lot about the search for a vaccine, the race for a vaccine. We've talked a lot, too, about the role of testing in our battle against the virus. Let's get into that with Dr. Heather Failing, Vice President of Laboratory Sciences and Chief Scientific Officer of Molecular Diagnostics at Clinical Reference Laboratory. They are one of the largest privately held clinical testing labs in the United States. She's also former director of the Genomics Lab at Children's Mercy Hospital. Dr. Failing joining us from Kansas. It is so nice to have you here with us. I have to say it does feel like things are getting very tough again. First of all, what's going on in Kansas when it comes to COVID? Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And sure. and correct, similar to other states, we're seeing a, a surge in cases as well. Um, our, our, you know, latest numbers showed a positivity rate of about 14.5 percent. Wow. Um, with about, as of November 11th, uh, pushing 18,000 positive cases. Uh, so, yes, we're, we're definitely seeing the same surge. So what does this mean? I mean, what are your expectations of how the next couple of months go for us? And we're going to get into the testing that you guys are doing and, and what you've created. But I do wonder um, about what it looks like. I've talked to uh, CEOs of the pharmaceutical companies that are on the leading edge of all of this when it comes to a vaccine. Uh, we've heard from a lot of different individuals that they are anticipating a pretty dark winter. Yes, and, and I would agree. I, I think we need to continue to put public health measures in place, uh, continue with the, the masking, the social distancing, and, of course, uh, the testing in order to, to contain that virus and until we can get to the point where uh, we can get the vaccine rolled out effectively. So what's going on when it comes to testing? I have to say our company here at Bloomberg has made it very, very easy for all of us to get tested. Um, However, I tried to get testing for a family member. It's long lines. There's lists. There's callbacks. It's really not a great system. Correct. I I would agree. And, and, you know, in response to complaints like that, uh, CRL just this week launched a direct-to-consumer offering for COVID testing. So it allows the consumer to initiate their own test order for COVID. Um, And it's actually an at-home, self-collected, saliva-based test. So uh, some of the home-based tests that you see out there use a nasal swab, and this one is uh, a saliva-based test for the detection of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, it received FDA emergency use approval at the end of July, uh, and it's uh, a highly accurate test. Uh, in our FDA studies, we demonstrated 100% sensitivity and specificity, uh, so no false positives and negatives. Um, so we're, we're excited for the launch of this test in order to expand our offering. Um, I, I believe as we get more folks uh, tested, we can really, before the well, holidays, help to contain things. Wait, okay, so it sounds really easy. Um, and I've done the saliva test. Um, I've done an easier nasal test. I haven't done the one where everyone says it feels like they're touching your brain. <laughs> so thankfully, I'm lucky for that. But so talk to me specifically about this test. You say 100% sensitivity and specificity. What does that mean? 
Right. Uh, so in our FDA studies, we had to compare this test to what the FDA considers as the gold standard, which is that long nasal pharyngeal swab. And what we found is in known COVID-19 cases, we were able to successfully identify the presence of the virus in 100% of the cases we tested, uh, which was definitely good news. And when we compared in our study uh, the results to the what they call the anterior nasal swabs, the shorter nasal swabs used in other at-home kits, those swabs could only correctly identify the presence of the virus in 55% of the cases. Um, so what we found is that it's very technique dependent with the swabs, both the nasal and the nasal pharyngeal. Um, you don't know how much material you necessarily get on the end of that swab. Um, and when you're self-administering, it's, it's definitely tricky to get it up there. So does, um, that, so does that mean, Dr. Failing, that if somebody doesn't do it right, like you said, it's pretty... Um, 100% sensitivity and specificity, um, does that mean if you don't do it correctly, there could be a false negative or false positive? False negative, that's, I guess, more likely? Right. That's correct. More likely a, a false negative. Right. Um, and, and when you do the saliva test, it's much easier. You're just spitting in a tube. To It's about a mil of saliva that's collected. It's pretty foolproof. Um, so it's a much more even sample source. And we've shown that you're able to detect more viral material in that one mill as opposed to what's on the end of that swab. So we're talking about the tests that you have. They're saliva-based. You have a rapid test and a regular test. What I do wonder is how's your supply chain for making sure that you have enough equipment materials in order to meet any demand that's out there? Because I know that's been certainly a concern as we get deeper deep, deeper and deeper into COVID. There have been some concerns that companies are just not going to have the supplies that they need. Correct. That's been an ongoing issue and one that we initially wanted to solve for in development of the saliva-based test because early on in the pandemic, we were experiencing shortages of swabs. Uh, so we wanted a, a self-collect method that didn't depend on that or the necessary PPE. Um, so we, once we figured out the test worked well and gave good results, we started investing heavily in the devices that are used for the sample collection, as well as building out the capacity in the lab, uh, meaning the automation, as well as the PCR instruments that are crucial for running the test. Uh, in addition, uh, the consumables. Um, so we have inventoried substantial uh, quantities of all of those in order to support testing moving forward. So no, no, so the supply chain's working as you want. Uh, everything's going smoothly right now. Yes, uh, we did a, a lot of research in order to ensure that the, that would be the case. What's the What's the demand for these tests at this point? Can you give us an idea? I know you're working with the University of Kansas. You've worked with other um, members of uh, the academic academic world, excuse me. Um, so give me an idea of what kind of demand you're having for these tests. We're having a, a, a nice demand for them. Like you said, we're working with universities, LA public schools, uh, working with sports groups like the Kansas City Chiefs, Sweets fans, as well as Dancing with the Stars. Um, so we're having a nice uptake. And uh, one of the things that folks say after they've gone through the experience is that they enjoyed the test uh, process and then want to offer it to their friends and family. And that was really the backdrop for us developing the consumer-facing product so that we could broaden the reach for the test and allow others not in our customer groups uh, to participate and get a test. So this consumer product, um, Dr. Failing, uh, how, how quickly do you get the results? So I'm assuming you could have the product at home, you take the test, I'm assuming you have to get it into the mail within 24 hours or something like that, and I'm just curious when, when the test comes back. 
it comes back within approximately 24 hours from receipt at our lab. So and how, a nice nice turnaround time. But how quickly does somebody have to, do they take the test and they have to get it in the mail within a certain time too, I'm assuming? Uh, well, they, typically they will order the test and then mail it back uh, via priority overnight to receive in our lab the next day. But the device itself does have 21-day room temperature stability. Um, so it, it does have a nice stability on it, but folks definitely want to know their results. Right, right. So, but my, my get, but what I'm assuming is that you do the test, you've got to get it in the mail um, within 24 hours. Then you're saying within receipt, you get it within 24 hours. So I'm assuming it, like within a day or two, you know what the results are? Yes, yes. And that, that's our goal with that turnaround time and why we built out capacity to support that. We, we want folks to get their res- results in their hands so that they can appropriately take action. You know, they can quarantine if necessary and notify others who might have been exposed. What are your expectations about ramp up of this? I mean, you're watching, like you said, you're working with Dancing with the Stars. You're working with, you know, universities. It's, it's interesting uh, to hear the populations that have reached out to you. But what are your expectations about do we essentially become kind of a testing, a home testing society? How quickly can that happen? Uh, yes, I, I think we can we can pivot to that it, with folks working from home more now. I think they're expecting to do more things out of the home. Um, so I, I think we're definitely going to see a nice uptick uh, using this uh, consumer-facing product. So we're very excited about it. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Dr. Heather Failing, thank you so much. She's a VP of Lab Sciences and Chief Scientific Officer at Clinical Reference Laboratory, uh, and she is joining us on the phone from Kansas. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, talk about multitasking. It's the money transfer app that provides relief from runaway inflation and a worthless currency. It's also the subject of a story from Bloomberg Business Week. Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg News Latin America reporter Andrew Rosati joining us right now, both with us on the phone from Brooklyn. And Joel, I got to say, I love when the magazine takes us to emerging markets and things taking place that are innovative, but kind of also out of necessity. Yeah, when I when I first heard about the story, I just thought it was phenomenal because yeah. it is a service that a lot of us know and probably have used, which is Zelle. It's a very common uh, money transfer app here in America. But I what believe it's Andrew I believe Doug- it's Zelly, actually, isn't it? Zelly, totally. <laughs> so so the the uh, the thing that that Andrew brought up though was that this is actually this app is being used in Venezuela basically unintendedly like you know tons of people in Venezuela have a currency that's basically worthless the dollar has always dominated transactions there but instead of it being a hard currency what we're seeing is actually people using the app so Andrew I'm just very curious how did this story come to light and and why why this particular service yeah, it, it, it's funny. Dollarization has been going on for a number of years now in Venezuela, just as, as the inflation goes higher and higher and higher. And, you know, I, I was a correspondent there for many years, and I recently came back uh, to New York. And uh, it's funny, when I came back, I, I kept um, I kept trying to use it here. And it didn't really catch on, because in Venezuela, <laughs> aside from things like rent payments and, you know, big transfers to friends and families, but in Venezuela... It, you use it for everything, like literally a candy bar or a pair of sneakers. People use it multiple times, you know, multiple times a day. And to this day, people are constantly calling me in Venezuela to, to see if I can help them out and make transfers. It's just so ubiquitous there. And it kind of came about because, you know, it, we, we were seeing, we got some numbers that was coming out that like kind of confirmed what we already knew that, 
you know, in cities like Caracas, the capital, it accounts for over uh, 17% of all transactions there, which is huge. And this is at a time that Venezuela is under U.S. sanctions and ruled by a government that describes itself as proudly anti-capitalist. So it's just kind of this very ironic twist of things all going on at once that we thought it made for a really colorful, fun story. What's great about it, too, and you write this, and I think there's somebody quoted about how, you know, sanctions against the Venezuelan government, right, by the U.S., but not necessarily against the people there. And so they're able to kind of tap into the U.S. financial system, which is backed by some really major U.S. players. That's right. That's right. Zelle is owned by you know, seven of the U.S.'s largest banks, and uh, it, it, its network stretches to hundreds of them. And, you know, these dollarizations often happen in other, like, basket case or, or pariah economies or pariah states. So, you know, you can see dollars on the streets of Havana or, or, or Tehran, but this, this, you know, this distinction in Venezuela that Venezuelan citizens aren't sanctioned. Um, and they still have access to the U.S. financial system, really allowed Zelle to take off there almost in a way that it hasn't taken off here. It, it just People embrace it far more than, than, than Venmo, far more than PayPal or that, uh, uh, Cash App. You see sign, homemade signs for it all over the street, all over the streets in Caracas. So one of the other interesting notes here is that it's not only something that's used w- within Venezuela, but it's also something that allows people out of Venezuela to, to transfer money into Venezuela. Can you tell us about some of the stories that you found out about on that front? Yeah, it's um, Venezuela right now, with the ongoing crisis there, um, is suffering a refugee crisis uh, comparable to that of Syria. There's cu- currently over fi- around 5 million Venezuelans now living outside of their country. And you know, there's hundreds of thousands that have taken up, you know, started new lives here in the United States. So this has really been a way for the diaspora to send money home as well. And we found all these situations that people who maybe not have a Zelle account or a bank account themselves are texting friends and family back in the States. One character or one person we found is a guy named Gerardo. He is his friend um, essentially does all his shopping for him, but he lives in Los Angeles. And with a four-hour time difference, this poor guy, Gerardo, can't do any shopping until afternoon when his friend wakes up. So people have to completely adjust their lives when friends and family are willing to be, be able to zap money to a merchant or, or, or another person in Venezuela. And so what about banks in all of this? Um, you know, you mentioned that, that there is um, some li- a little bit of, uh, of caginess um, and that, you know, Wells Fargo in particular has black. Right, right. Um, so from what we, we, we tell um, from the sanctions and talking to legal experts, like there's nothing, uh, there's nothing explicit in the Treasury sanctions that prohibit this going on. However, you know, Banks use really, really sophisticated algorithms and uh, and security software. And what we're seeing is that some of the banks, with all these uh, with all these transactions going on, and so many of them, some of their algorithms and, and Wells Fargo especially has uh, has put holds on or suspended at least briefly hundreds of accounts in Venezuela. And this like really threw a wrench uh, in, in the. In the basic, you know, basic lives of hundreds of Venezuelans there, because mm. suddenly the service they're using to buy groceries, pay for their children's schooling, uh, 
home repairs, you name it, they suddenly lost it and it sent them scrambling to find new ways. And we yeah. reached out to Wells Fargo and they, they, they only said that they would only flag the accounts that weren't inconsistent with the attended use. And some of these accounts have, they're restored, have been restored back, but it's, it's a situation with so many people and figures right. of the government being sanctioned there, people are, are are worried about sending money or letting their transfers go to the wrong hands. Andrew, really quickly, 30 seconds. Venezuelan government, I mean, are they like, wait a minute, we got to stop this? Are they okay? I'm just curious what you're hearing, just quickly. The Venezuelan government, uh, President Nicolas Maduro himself, has given his blessing to dollarization. They, they think it's become, you know, this escape valve for all the other things going wrong in the country. I mean, it would be, you know, even if Zell would get shut down, there would be another system to to pop up right away, whether it's something like Venmo or or a more smaller one. So I I don't think anyone wants to see it go away anytime soon. Yeah, interesting. Well, great read. Um, And interesting to see how this is working out in Venezuela. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Andrew Rosati, he is Bloomberg News Latin America reporter on the phone in Brooklyn. Our thanks to Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor, uh, also joining us on the phone from Brooklyn. Check out that full story. You can find it in the magazine and also online at businessweek.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Hey, our top story at this hour, and it's top because I got to say, it's a story that sparked a few conversations in my own home uh, and did on our news call this morning. It's about a flurry of changes that we've been seeing and talking about here at Bloomberg in the Pentagon's top ranks, those changes brought on by President Trump. I want to get into what it means, why it's happening now. Bloomberg's Tony Capaccio is uh, following it for us. He is Bloomberg News Pentagon and National Security Reporter. He joins us on the phone from the nation's capital. Hey, Tony, good to have you here with us. So what's going on? What's going on is that we're seeing the kind of the ramifications of the election in terms of we knew Esper, Mark Esper, was going to be fired at some point. That's been out there. Bloomberg was on top of that. But the shock came. It, it happened pretty quick. It happened by tweet and then followed yesterday by the head of the acting head of policy, James Anderson, tendering his resignation, and then the head of intelligence for the Pentagon having his retirement accelerated by like a month. And there was this cumulative impact here. There, it gives the impression there there's a, a tornado going on in the Pentagon, and it's it's actually a lot calmer than you might think. But the big reason people are concerned here is because a fellow named Anthony Tata, I uh, quite a right winger who was up for the policy position back in June. His name was pulled back by the White House because it lacks Senate support from both Republicans and Democrats. Now he becomes the acting assistant undersecretary for policy. Why is it happening now? I mean, you said, I know you said Esper was expected, but I'm just trying to understand. You said it's pretty normal. Like, help me understand. Because it feels like somebody said to me, is this a consolidation of power underway? What's going on? There was more pro- there were, it was more problematic when Mattis re- resigned in December of 2018. Okay. That was, a, that was a shock. Nobody expected that. I was there when, Jan- when Rumsfeld was fired. That was a shock. 2004, Abu Ghraib, the famous prison scandal broke. That was a shock because we thought Rumsfeld and the Joint Chiefs of Staff chairman would be fired. So this, you know, while it looks bad, it looks because it's, it's Trump and it seems vindictive, and it, there's three in a row here. 
you, the American people and the re- listeners can take solace in the fact that the, the military there, they're used to transitions. They've seen it. There's an aura of calm among the Joint Chiefs of Staff. General Milley, the chairman, is not resigning. So they're waiting now for signals from Christopher Miller, this new acting, under, this new acting defense secretary, in terms of what's going to be his agenda for the next 70 days. So is this, and forgive me, not being political, not pointing mm-hmm. fingers, but it's, it's, is it just more of kind of this is how the president has run the administration, and so changes happen. It doesn't matter what the clock says or where he is, you know, in terms of a second term or not. Um, but it's just, you know, him just kind of wanting to do what he wants to do. That's kind of it. I think it's poking its eye, his eye at critics, too. I mean, look at it this way. You had three defense, you have three service secretaries, and you have a deputy defense secretary. They're all passed over for a former Green Bar- Navy, I think it was Navy SEAL, excuse me, mm-hmm. who, who was counterterrorism director, and he was brought in. You, you passed over all three of those men, and women, too. The Air Force Secretary is a woman. Mm-hmm. And the Deputy Defense Secretary, you pass over them for this guy, then you got to wonder, is there, a, is there a Trump agenda? That's, that's the worrisome part of this. Well, what, what could be the Trump agenda that we would be worried about? Well, you know, that's a good question. I keep, I'm trying to report that now, but there could be several ways he could uh, rat-screw the public and the military, so to speak. He could try to accelerate the drawdown in Afghanistan over the next 70 days. He can accelerate the withdrawal of troops from Germany. He can really put the blockers on the the Biden transition team in terms of the Pentagon budget, preparation of the budget. There are those types of things. But the biggest danger of all is whether Iran, Iran, Russia, and China will take advantage of this seeming turmoil to push us in the South China Sea, Ukraine, Europe, or uh, back in, in Iraq with Iranians attacking U.S. troops. So that's the, that is the real danger, I think, versus Washington uh, seven, days in May, seven days in May in reverse where the civilians take over type of thing. Because I have to, unless there's like some kind of skirmish, right, around the globe, I feel like we don't think about the Pentagon a lot. But we should because it's really important in terms of, you know, the U.S. and their role around the mm-hmm. world and keeping peace and being, you know, just kind of watching what's going on. But I do wonder what the perception is globally right now, uh, Tony, when we, when, you know, global leaders are looking at this and just kind of seeing, again, another round of turmoil, if you will, or volatility in a very important agency of the government. Mm -hmm. Another round of volatility. I think there's collective eye turning and kind of a wait and see since he just literally, Miller just came in a couple days ago. So you want to give him some chance to articulate his vision. You know, maybe it'll be benign. I was asking one analyst today, what's the best thing that could happen? He says nothing, because that way the Trump, the Biden administration comes into office and they don't inherit a lot of turmoil. They're, they're going to have enough turmoil to deal with in terms of the COVID relief. But having additional artificial and turmoil induced in these next coming 70 days will, I, will make their, their task even stronger. So less is more in this case. That's what we can hope for. Right. Fingers uh, crossed. Go ahead, Yeah. Tony. My, my thought is that there, there's probably going to be more, more uh, not fire, well, maybe firings mm-hmm. or resignations, although there's not a lot of people left in the building who are, are permanent. And you're, you're going to see some petty retribution mm-hmm. against some employees there. I mean, Miller may fire some lower-level GS-15-ish types, right. but 
I don't know. That's not the guy doesn't have a track record doing that. But you got to be suspicious because he was put in at the over the tops of the several secretaries and the de- number two deputy David Norquist. So right. that is that's suspicious. Listen, this is interesting. If you can be quick, twenty five seconds. Does it slow this? You know, the transition. We know it's it's not going like it should normally go. Do we have to be worried that you know the Biden team isn't getting what it needs? Just quickly, twenty seconds. Uh, we, GSA, the General, General Services Administration, pushes the button that says the transition should begin. You will know within the next week or so if that if they're being stone if the Biden people are being stonewalled or not. Right now, it's too early to tell. Okay, because we know the Pentagon and what they're doing is certainly important in all of this. Hey, Tony, thank you so much. Uh, I've been thinking about this story a lot, and I know our listeners are as well. So really appreciate you getting us up to speed. Bloomberg's Tony Capaccio. Uh, he is our Bloomberg News Pentagon and National Security Reporter. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. With us is Philip Palumbo. He's CEO, CIO, and founder of Palumbo Wealth Management. It's a boutique wealth management firm, and he joins us uh, on the phone in Great Neck, Long Island. Uh, Philip, it's nice to have you here with us. How are you? Good, Carol. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, you got to be watching those virus numbers uh, climbing. I do wonder how that kind of, you know, you factor it in into what that could potentially mean for the economy, what it means and ultimately for companies, and then the financial market. So how do you see it? What do you, are you a little nervous? Uh, so I'm actually not as nervous as others are. And the reason why is I just think we're in a much better place today than we were back in March in terms of understanding the virus. Therapeutics really uh, have come a long way since March. Death rate seems to be a lot less than back in March. And, yeah, the numbers definitely are ticking up, and I do think it will create some short-term volatility, uh, especially as we think about December, January, especially with new president-elect Biden coming into office, and and possibly he's more on board with uh, possible lockdowns. So that does concern me. I think it will create some volatility. But I think ultimately the markets, you know, as we know, it does look forward. You know, it doesn't look back, and I think the market's looking forward to the vaccine, the advancement on these therapeutics, and I think markets will trade based on that. Well, that's uh, what so I... You'll get some volatility, yes, but I think overall, I think markets will look past that. That's what I wondered, too, um, you know, that at this point, we kind of know this playbook. If it gets bad, we kind of know what we need to do. We know what probably exactly. will happen. Um, whether or not we get more aid to help out companies, that's certainly up in question, uh, and it will be some time before that happens, but we kind of understand it. You know... Do you see, is it a year from now that you think things are much more normal and we start to see an economy and demand that is much more normal? Yeah, I, th- I really do believe that we go, we, we go back to normality second quarter of next year. So I think, you know, as, as I talk to people all the time. Did I you say banality? Uh, Did you actually say banality? No, no, or normality? We go back to normality in terms of life as we know it. I do think that second quarter of next year, we really start to see that. I think, the, you know, we start to see mass productions of the vaccine. You know, uh, the first quarter of 21 and going into the second quarter. 
And I think, I think that when that starts to come to fruition, I think we start to really go back to normal. And I think, you know, again, like I said before, I think markets trade on that. And the other thing we have to really think about as investors is, you know, where else are you going to go from an investment perspective? You know, interest rates are at, at all-time lows. We know we're going to get some type of stimulus plan. And, and inflation is low right now. Gas prices are low. So when you think about it from an investment perspective, if you have a long-term time horizon, as most of my clients do and, and right. many investors do, that I just think there, there is, uh, there's potential to do well in the equity markets going forward. So you're working with those higher net wealth, net yes. wealthy individuals. So I do wonder, you know, what have you guys been doing over the last six, seven months? Have, have things changed in terms of strategy? Have you moved some things mm-hmm. to safer? Uh, as you said, it's long-term strategy. So I do wonder, right. did you change nothing for these clients or what? So as I, as I always tell my clients, so I really believe in a balanced approach. So the way we balance portfolios is we use treasuries and we use gold to hedge equities. And when the crisis occurred from February, February 9th peak to the trough of March 23rd, treasuries moved up 20 to 25 percent when stocks went peak to trough down 35 percent. So what I always tell clients and we're dynamic is that's when we make tactical changes when asset classes are, doing, are, are dislocated and that we're managing we look to sell treasuries, part of it, look to buy stocks at, at trough levels. And that's what we did in terms of rotation during this crisis. And now that equities have moved up, it actually looked like obviously a, a great thing to, to have done. I had no idea that that was the bottom at that time, obviously. Right. I didn't know that if you do buy equities, you know, as, as it starts to decline, 10%, 20%, 30% or more, and rebalance it with, with asset classes that are going to do well, you know, over time, you know, that's how you make a lot of money, and that's one of our strategies. Well, let me just ask you. So you guys were buying treasuries, right, when it was getting a little crazy. Were you selling equities? No, so we owned – so when we, when we build portfolios for clients, part of our balance approach is to own treasuries. Okay. So every one of our model portfolios owns treasuries. Already. So going into the – yeah. Going into the crisis, and always, we always have part of our clients' portfolios in treasuries to hedge against equities when equities get hit hard. Got it. Okay. So it's just, it's not that you necessarily were changing anything, um, no, but it was correct. just already in there to hedge. I got it. Correct. Um, what yeah. about, though, when you started to see, I, you know, so what has changed in, in terms of any kind of strategy? Again, I understand you guys are doing this for the long term, so it's not yeah, like you're in okay. and out. But I do wonder yeah. if there's anything that has changed. I mean, listen, if you want it to be, you know, we've been talking a lot about value and maybe finally it's that time to come back, um, you know, is it a time to be a little bit more aggressive in, in, in one of your investors' portfolios? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so the, the key thing that we're, we're really looking at, so everybody's talking about today this value growth shift that's occurred over the past week. And really over the past month, you see value has outperformed growth. But obviously the past 14, 15 years, growth has outperformed value. But if you look over the last 100 years, value has beaten growth. So there's always these periods where growth beats value, value beats growth. And that's why I believe as a long-term investor, you really have to be balanced between both and not really try to time and figure that out because I think you could really get hurt over time. If interest rates stay as low as they are today, growth, in my view, will continue to outperform value. But that doesn't mean I'm going to overweight or sell all my value stocks to buy growth. I'm going to keep a balanced approach. If growth starts starts to become heavy relative to the portfolio, then I'm going to rebalance into value to keep it even, Stephen, rather than trying to bet which area I think is going to do better over time. Hey, Phil, just got about 40 seconds left here. I mean, is, are, most of the por- are most of the portfolios kind of traditional assets, or is it also, are we looking at, 
you know, buying into private equity? Are we buying into, mm-hmm. you know, different types of assets? Just quickly. Yeah, so, yep, sure. So to answer your question before, you asked me about, you know, thought process in terms of portfolio. So we yeah. are looking at treasuries. We're concerned about rates are low now, but it offers the same protection as it always has when stocks decline. So the reality is that we have to look at alternatives such as hedge funds that may provide low correlation or negative correlation to stocks, mm-hmm. ways to hedge stocks using options and collars, private equity. So, yes, we do have to look outside our normal universe to help protect because interest rates are so low, and I'm not sure if Treasury will do the same or create that same balance as it has in the past. Yeah, especially if you're looking for some yield um, longer term. Yes. Hey, listen, thank you so much. Philip Palumbo, he's CEO, CIO, founder of Palumbo Wealth Management. It's a boutique wealth management firm uh, based out there on uh, Long Island, and Phil joining us on the phone from Great Nick. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.